0: Why are we here? Do you ever wish that you could overhear God discussing us? Or God discussing why we're here? In John 17, we get to listen into one of the most amazing conversations God discussing with God why we're here. It's like being on top of a mountain, is John 17. You can see for miles. And from the top of this mountain, you can see back into eternity past. And you can see far, far forward into the depths of eternity future. From the height of this mountain peak, you cannot just see in that direction and that direction, but you can see down into the depths, down into the depths of the crucifixion. Even more than you do in the other gospel accounts of the crucifixion. We see it in this prayer before the crucifixion. And from these heights, this is where because we're up so high, we can see something of the very heart of God himself. The hour is late on the Thursday evening. The Passover has been observed Uh, Most likely, Jesus and his disciples are on their way uh, to Gethsemane, having left the the upstairs room where they had observed the Passover. And Jesus has sought to prepare the disciples for what is about to come and to equip them and to reassure them. And these are solemn moments. They're on their way to Gethsemane where he will be betrayed and arrested and then taken for trial And then crucified. Yet there is an air of triumph about them. Cast your eye back to the previous chapter and to the closing verse. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. He's going to the cross. But there's not despair. There is not desperation there is anticipation there's even an air of triumph and jesus starts to pray and this is the lord's prayer the one that we call the lord's prayer it's one that he taught his disciples but it's one that he couldn't pray he wasn't going to need forgiveness of sins was he but this is his prayer And there are things in it that we can't pray. We're not the Son. But as we listen to the Son praying here, we get fantastic glimpses into the desire, the thinking of Jesus in this moment. We get glimpses of eternity. We get glimpses of God. And it is a wonderful chapter. And we're going to take our time studying it. This morning we'll look only at two verses. And I won't even mind the depths of those two verses. Don't, don't be discouraged if, as you read John 17, you think to yourself, I don't see what's so amazing about it. For years, I would hear preachers, I would hear ministers, I would hear reading commentaries, men saying, This is an astounding chapter. And I would read it and think, yeah, there's, there's nice stuff there, but I don't see what they're seeing. And now I'm beginning to get a little glimpse of it. And I think it's the more we know our Bibles and the more we know our Savior and the more that we've been exploring the Christian life, we start to see all of the pieces of background that lie behind this and it becomes richer and richer as we read it. And so if you're coming to this for the first time, enjoy it. It's like, it's like swimming uh, in the the Caribbean. The water is lovely, and if you're just paddling at the edge, that's a really, really enjoyable and delightful, and if you're swimming a little bit out of your depth, that's great, but you can be a really proficient swimmer, and you'll not exhaust the wonders of snorkeling in the Caribbean or in the Great Barrier Reef, and this is like that. There's much to see. Uh, it has a special place in my heart, John 17, for it's the very first passage I ever preached on. As a young man thrown in at the deep end, very much the deep end with John 17, preaching to a group of Hungarians through an interpreter in a village in Hungary in the early 1990s. This was the passage I had to speak on. It divides into three sections. Divides into Jesus' prayer for himself, verses 1 to 5. And then his prayer for his disciples, 6 to 19. And then 20 to 26, his prayer for those who would follow. And there's something wonderful about reading those verses and realizing back then he's praying for us here in this room. Or if you're reading it sitting in your sitting room or in your bedroom. And you're reading those verses, he's praying for me. For me. He knows me. And he's praying for me. And as we go through this, we want to remember that this is a prayer. We want to remember that uh, not only um, is it packed with riches, but it's Jesus praying to his Father about his work. In verses 1 to 5, God the Son is talking to God the Father about the great plan of salvation. Now, why should we sitting here be hearing about this we need to hear these verses because too often our lives become shrunk to the size of our thoughts and our thoughts are very often shrunk to the size of what's going on day by day and we need to be pulled back as it were so we can see the bigger picture so that we can marvel at who God is and get out of our own way These verses lift our eyes away from salvation just being about Sunday to Saturday and January to December and living for God and and, and going to heaven when we die. These verses show us something much bigger. We have been caught up into something spectacular and it's not even about us. And that's what makes it so good. Four things I want us to note and then five applications to finish with at the end. First of all, there's a real closeness here, isn't there? There's a closeness of relationship. If we'd read through the whole chapter, you would find there are certain words that are repeated over and over again. And It would be useful to go through the chapter with a highlighter, print it out, um, photocopy whatever, highlight it in your own Bible and mark off. The words that are repeated. Look for words like glory and glorify. Look for words like give and given and give, And look for a word like father. It occurs six times. Verse uh, 1 and then verse 5. Now father glorify me. Verse 11. Holy father protect them. Verse 20. Father Just as you are in me. Verse 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. Verse 25, Righteous Father. There's real closeness. You see, in the, the Old Testament, you'll not find God addressed as Father. Described as Father, yes, a few times, but addressed as Father. It's too close, too intimate. Even when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Our Father... There's a closeness, but there was the exaltedness of in heaven. But now it's stripped of everything and it's just Father, Father, Father. And as you read, you can't help but see the closeness. And there's this closeness. You can see the relationship. has The Father cares for the glory of the Son and the Son cares about the glory of the Father. And he wants everyone to see that the Father is great. And the Father wants everyone to see that the Son is glorious. That's the closeness. And this relationship has gone on for the longest of time. You know what it's like whenever somebody that you've known for a little while insults you. Well, so what? When somebody that you've known for a lifetime says something hurtful. It really strikes us. Or perhaps on the other side of the coin... A relationship with somebody you've known through thick and thin for many, many, many years. And the relationship is your lives are woven with a closeness that, that is hard to describe. But it's rich and beautiful. Well here is a father and son whose lives have been interwoven for millennia before time even began to be counted. And there's an unimaginable closeness in that little word Father. And we see the Father's generosity to the Son for you. Verse 2, the Father, you gave the Son authority. Thirteen times we're told that the Father has given the Son something in this chapter. He's a generous Father. He loves His Son. And even the things that the Son, we're told, gives to us are things that the Father gave to the Son. Here's a Father who just heaps his generosity on his Son. And that closeness is made Explicit in verse 23. Verse 23. The closing phrase. Let the world know that you sent me and have loved them. Even as you have loved me. Even as you have loved me. In verse 26. um, Middle phrase. uh, I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known. In order that the love you have for me may be in them. Here's a rich And beautiful relationship. Immensely close. Now why do we need to hear about this? Why do we need to think so much on a single word? It's because of what's going to happen. It's because of what is coming. Less than 24 hours later, those same lips that have said, Father, Father, Father. Those same lips will cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And how is it possible? We're meant to notice the difference. We're meant to hear how he always speaks of his Father. And then this one time that he addresses God as, My God, my God. Something has, as it were, come between the Father and the Son, and that close interwoven friendship is, seems to have been separated. No longer is the Son experiencing the closeness Instead of experiencing separation, forsakenness. And why is it? Well, we'll come to that. But this word highlights for us the contrast of what's coming. And then another reason we need to think about this word, Father, is because of what's on offer. The disciples are listening to this. They're hearing the intimacy and the closeness. And they're beginning to grow in their understanding that Being that we've called God in all his majesty. We can call Father. This way that the Son addresses the Father is how he told us to address God. This is an offer to us all. And they begin to understand the closeness is theirs too because of what's about to happen at the cross. And you can hear them marveling. John marvels in his... Dying letters. It says, Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished in us. That we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. He's still marveling at it 60 years later. Paul marvels at it in Romans 8. He says, We didn't receive a spirit that makes us a slave again to fear. But we receive the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Father. So with This closeness that you hear here is our greatest privilege if we've put our trust in Christ. Do you need reminded of that this morning? That you can call him Father? Or if you haven't yet come to Christ, do you need to take up the offer of salvation so you can enjoy this closeness? A close relationship. Secondly, an appointed time. They are... Come. The hour has come. It's a significant word in John. Again, you can go through John with your highlighter, pen, and mark out the variety of times Jesus says R or time. In John 2, in his first miracle, he says, My hour has not yet come. In John 7, he says, My time is not yet here. In John 8 we read, No one seized him at the temple because his hour had not yet come. And then chapter 12, there's a turning point. The hour has come. John 13, knowing that his hour had come. And now Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. What's he talking about? What is this hour? It's the hour of redemption. The hour set from before time began the most critical hour, the most pregnant hour, pregnant, as one writer puts it, with great events, since hours ever began to be numbered, since time began to run, the most significant and critical hour there has ever been, the hour when God's plans of redemption are going to be put into effect they are that everything in the Old Testament had been pointing forward to. They are that everything in Jesus' life had been building towards. He says in verse 4, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Everything that needed to be done has been done. And now the moment has arrived for redemption. They are of redemption. It's the hour of darkness. In Luke 22 verse 53, Jesus says, Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. The hour of the religious leaders conniving and skullduggery. The hour of betrayal. It would be Satan's hour of his last frenzied attack not knowing, Do I kill him? Or do I distract him from the cross? Do I kill him with the cross or distract him? He doesn't know. That's the genius of the crucifixion. We know it's the means to our salvation, but I don't know that Satan knows it. Am I destroying the Son of God? Or should I distract him from this? It's almost as if he doesn't know what to do, but he knows that he wants to cause pain and hardship. Professor Leakey says in his little book, The Cross He Bore, In all of time, this hour was especially Satan's. In this dread hour, he had free reign. In the case of Job, God set a limit to Satan's activity. In the experience of Christ, there were no limits to Satan's onslaught. He was free to do his worst, and he did. It's an hour of darkness the hour of suffering. Beyond the darkness and the attack, there is something else. It's the hour of him bearing our sins in his body. It's the hour of our iniquity being laid on him. We all, like sheep, had gone astray. Each of us had turned to his own way. But in that hour, the Lord laid on him The iniquity of us all. Not only the the sin, but the punishment. The price that was to be paid. It would happen in this hour when the Father would act as judge and not as Father. He would act to the Son as He should have acted to us as judge. So that we who deserve to be judged could be acted on and acted to by the father, as a father. The son stepped into our place so that we could step into his. It was that hour. That was the hour when judgment would fall, not on the people who sinned, but on the son who was sinless. And it was an appointed hour. And Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. You get the sense that there's a timetable. This hour was appointed before time began. There is a plan of salvation. We see it hinted at here in verse 2. Authority has been given to the Son. A people have been given to the Son. This is the hour that mankind has been waiting for since Eden. That hour has been appointed. It has been predetermined. It has been predestined. And it's here. And that sets us up for the third thing that we need to note. An unlikely glory. An unlikely glory. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. Glorify your Son. This, it could mean one of two things. It could mean restore to me the glory I had at the beginning. Before I came to this earth. That's what he means in verse 5. But this is different. The hour has come, glorify your son. It's this hour, this hour of suffering and darkness and bearing sin that is to be the moment of glorifying of the son. The glorifying and the hour of sin bearing and punishment bearing are the same thing. Throughout John's Gospel John has been teaching us that glory isn't always impressive. For John glory is seen in humble service and here the Son of God is not displaying His majesty but His glory is going to be seen in the cross in a way that couldn't be seen anywhere else. He For John, glory is seen not in grandstanding, not in showing off, but when someone high and lofty does something lowly and humbling, when they leave a place of privilege and come to serve. And the cross is the place where real glory happens. And that's a a startling thing to be said in a first century world. The Romans wouldn't even mention the word cross. It was such a shameful death. Just as I was working on the sermon, um, a historian wrote a piece in the Spectator uh, magazine and he wrote this, a man called Tom Holland. Crucifixion, in the opinion of Roman intellectuals, was not a punishment just like any other. It was one peculiarly suited to slaves. Some deaths were so vile, so squalid, that it was best to draw a veil across them entirely so squalid, they wouldn't even mention its name. And yet Jesus says, glory, glory. This is glory for me to die like this. This is how God will display his glory to the world. In a way the world thought was as far in the opposite direction from glory than we could ever imagine. The Son is saying here, do this in this hour to your Son so that glory may come to you. Do this that we had planned about from before time began. Do it now so that glory can come to you. Lots of things display the glory of God. The glory of God is seen in His power in creation, in earthquakes and storms. His glory is seen in the, the northern lights and their shimmering, flickering beauty. We see the glory of God and his wisdom in how he works out all sorts of things and and the intricate details of plant life and biology. We see his justice, we see the glory of his holiness, but how could we see the glory of his love? How could we see that there is a depth to God's love? If there were only ever perfect creatures who only perfectly obeyed, we would never know that there is a depth to the glory of God's being where he would show mercy to the unlovely, where he would show compassion to the wicked and love to the spiritually grotesque. Without the cross, we couldn't see the depths of the glory of God. And so in displaying his glory... God steps into history. It's an idea so audacious that some religions and philosophies can't get their head around it. Islam. What would God be doing coming into this world? What a preposterous idea. The Greek and the Roman philosophers. What would the true God, the high God, the great God do with us? What folly coming into this world. But he does. He doesn't just come into this world. He goes to the cross. Let me give you another quote from Tom Holland again. He's left wondering. The cross, that ancient tool of imperial power. It is the audacity of it. The audacity of finding in a twisted and defeated corpse the glory of the creator of the universe. I don't think this man's a Christian. As far as I know, he's not. And yet he says, the, he gets it. The audacity. The audacity of finding in a twisted and defeated corpse the glory of the creator of the universe. That's the spectacular thing here. That the son who knows what this R whole says, glorify your son. It is glorious. How can God be more gloriously displayed How can his perfections be more richly set out for us than by this cross? The cross is the advertising hoarding that says to us, God is more gracious and loving and spectacular than you could ever have dreamt. Where do you get a God like this? No Roman God, no Greek God, not Allah of the Muslims would do this. The God, the true God, does it. Where do you find a God like this? Micah 7, 18, Who is a God like you, who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of his people, who does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love? Psalm 86. Among the gods there is none like you, O oh Lord, no deeds can compare with yours. You'll not find a God anywhere like this. A God who would go to the cross to display how glorious and how spectacular and how rich and wondrous he is. That brings us fourthly and very, very briefly to a giving God. This word, the words about giving and Gave come up over and over again, and we'll come back to them. But we need to just note them here in passing. Glorify your Son, Jesus says, so that your Son may glorify you. For just as you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life, sorry, for, or just as, that can be translated either way, for you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Given, given, given. Give. All authority has been given to the Son. Why? That he might give eternal life. Who to? To the people the Father has given to him. There's something incredible about this. There's the sheer generosity of the Father to the Son. There's the generosity of the Son to us. Some of you have already come to faith in Jesus Christ. You may remember the time. You may not. How did it happen? Maybe you remember acknowledging that you were a sinner and that you were guilty and that you were doomed and damned and you cried out to God in repentance and faith. And you put your trust in the one who would bear your sin and be damned in your place. And you put your trust in him. But behind and before that moment, you have eternal life because the Son gave it to you. Not because you were brilliant or worthy, but because you had been given to the Son as a gift from the Father. You see, the Father wants To display how brilliant and glorious his Son is. The Son wants the world to see how great the Father is. The Spirit wants, although not mentioned here, wants us all to see how great the Father and the Son are. And for this to happen, the Father says, I'll give you a people, my Son. The Son says, and those people, I'll rescue them, and they'll love you. They'll see how great my Father is. And the father says, Well, they'll see how great you are, son. And we get to be sucked up into the jet stream, the slipstream of the father's delight in the son and the son's delight in the father. And we get sucked along for the ride, as it were. And that's the very root of our salvation. The very reason you're a Christian, if you're a Christian this morning, is that the father gave you to the son. He said, Here, son, there's a people who will love you and think that you are astounding. And he gave the Son all the power and authority so that salvation would come to you, so that it would happen in that moment, so that you would come to faith. The Son had all the authority to orchestrate all of the events of your life so that you would come to that realization of, I am a sinner and I need a Savior. Where would I find a Savior big enough to pay for my sin to satisfy God? Here is God come into the world And gone to the cross. Isn't that glorious? We put our trust in him. And the son organized and orchestrated it all. Because the father had given you to him. The giving God. We'll think more about this in weeks to come. But let me finish with five applications. One, this gives us perspective. This gives us perspective. Um, the story is told about somebody who said to the preacher, I didn't get much out of the sermon this morning. And the preacher said, he was an Australian, and he was prone to be blunt. He said, It's not about you, stupid. <laughs> well, here we see it's not about us, it's not about me, it's not about you. There's a stunning God centeredness to salvation. These opening verses set out the entire plan of salvation, and it's being discussed, and you and I barely feature. The Son loves the Father and wants to bring a people to to wonder at His Father. And the Father loves the Son and wants people to see the wonder of His Son. You know, our great problem isn't that we've made a mess of our lives or that we're sinners. Our great problem is that we are focused on ourselves and want the world to revolve around us. We're glory thieves. It's not about us, stupid. Salvation is about God. It's about having our lives radically reshaped so that God is at the centre and we see Him as glorious. And we don't even think of ourselves as being less than nothing because we're so focused on Him. And his greatness. It gives us perspective. We think we can live for ourselves sometimes. And God should dance to our tune. And we have too small an idea of God. And this verse reminds us. It's not about us. It's not about us. Second thing. Amazement. We need to worship this saviour who would enter into such depths to display how glorious God is. He could have just left us to perish and we would have seen the glory of God's justice. But when he says, glorify your son, he's saying, send me to the cross so they can see the glory of your love. Let them beat me and spit on me and scourge me. And strip me and mock me and nail me to a tree that I created. Let me bear their sins. And pile on me their punishment. So they can see the glory of your great mercy and compassion. We should stand in amazement. Where else do you find a God like that? As Tom Holland said, the audacity of it. Thirdly, security. 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 There's something wonderful about salvation being about God's glory and not us. The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit is so committed to his glory that he cannot and will not do anything that will take away from it. So if he were to break his promise, if He, if the Father were to say, there's some people, son, and then he said, well, okay, I'll take some of those back and I'll not give them to you promise would be broken and God's glory would be destroyed. If he were to lose one of his people, he would not be as glorious. And so our security is tied into not us, not our faltering ways. It's tied into God's passion for his glory. The Father passion for the Son to be glorified. The Son's passion for the Father to be seen as glorious. And we are caught up into the slipstream of this. And there we're safe. We're safe. And the passage finishes. Look at verse 22. I have given them the glory that you gave me. The passage finishes with us brought safely home, enjoying the glory security. And then hope. Hope. Doesn't that fill us with hope for others? People that we think will never come to Jesus, that they'll never bow the knee, they'll never repent, they'll never trust. It's not about them. Ultimately, it depends on the father delighting in his son and saying, son, I've given you that person. That's what it boils down to. Doesn't that fill us with hope for those people that we care about, who seem so hardened? If the Father has given them to the Son, it doesn't matter how hard they are at all. Every conversion is a miracle, yours and mine, and anybody else's. Hope gives us hope. And boy, there's maybe some people you're thinking of, oh, think they'd never come. Think how much the glory would be to God. When they do. Not be you or me gets the glory, it'll not be that person gets the glory. It'll be God who gets it. And then finally, purpose. Purpose. If the Son's great goal was to glorify the Father, how much more should that be our purpose? To live lives that display that we have a great and glorious God, that we have a great Saviour, that we have a great Father that we have a great God living in us by the Holy Spirit to change us and to enable us to bring glory to God. Why are we here? Well, it's to get to know this glorious God as the Son knows him. And it's to live lives that bring glory to him. Amen. If you're able, let's stand as we come to God in prayer. Father in heaven, we've paddled. Paddled on the surface. We've looked a little below the surface and seen that there are beautiful truths on the, the, the reefs of this uh, great passage. But We haven't been able to go down terribly far to see them in their rich splendor, but we've been amazed at what we've seen from where we've been able to get to. Oh Lord, by your Spirit, help us to, to, to see the wonders that are here in a fresh way and to say to ourselves, this isn't even it. It's even better than this, it's even more glorious than this. Help us to be able to magnify it in our mind's eye. Father, thank you for giving us to the Son. Thank you for sending the Son. Thank you, Son, for going to the cross, for living for that hour, that appointed time, that moment when all our redemption would happen. And we thank you. We worship you and we praise you. And that you would call it glorify. Glorify this ugly, grotesque death. That you would call it a moment of glorifying. We thank you and worship you. And Lord, we th- pray that you would reorient our lives so that we would stop thinking we are wonderful. Stop thinking that things should revolve around us or seeing ourselves as pitiful and worthless. Let, let us get our eyes off ourselves completely and onto Jesus and see how glorious he is. Fill us with hope. Fill us with security. Fill us with a sense of purpose Fill us with amazement and awe and wonder. And let us live lives that glorify you. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's turn to Psalm 21. Psalm 21. To sing the first five verses of the psalm. Judith, the tune is number 103, Catherine. I read these verses in my own Bible reading after I'd prepared this sermon. Uh, I thought, surely, surely these verses were on Christ's mind as he prayed. They seem so appropriate. Uh, to uh, to John seventeen, the King, in your great strength, O Lord, will very joyful be, and your salvation makes him to rejoice most firmly you've given unto him what he desired within his heart, and you have not withheld requests that from his lips did part, for you will welcome him with gifts of blessings manifold when he requested life from you, you life to him did give. he came into the world. He lived his length of days so that salvation could come to us. Through your salvation he is great and glorified is he. Is that not it? Psalm 21 verses 1 to 5. Let's stand and sing.